for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Go to Isaiah chapter 9, and I want to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses for us this morning. Isaiah 9, 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I want to begin with the question this morning. What do you want for your family this morning? holiday season what do you want for you for your family this holiday season I know what some of you are thinking whoa 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 we it's not we haven't had Thanksgiving yet you can't begin to preach Christmas messages right well I'm gonna turn that on you a little bit how many of you have already put your Christmas decorations out oh conviction no, I know. You, you're like, I can put them out whenever I want to. I know how you feel about that. I know how you feel about that. You can put them out whenever you want to. You shouldn't, though. <laughs> I hadn't even had Thanksgiving yet. But I know some of you are living in it, so that, that's fine. You know, what we celebrate at Christmas, sometimes I fear, has been too confined to Christmas. And what we celebrate in the birth of Jesus Christ is the catalyst of the gospel, of the very change in which we enjoy. And and let me just share with you a little bit today about what I want for each of us, specifically as a church. I want us in this season to be prepared, to be ready, to be consumed with sharing Jesus. Most of you are fully aware that Um, bad arguments are readily available for Christmas, right? 
for us to argue and beckon against the culture to impose our understanding upon people who may or may not agree with us. But friends, I don't really care that we get bogged down in arguing for whether we should spell Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T, or just put an X before Moss for the holiday. I understand the traditions that celebrate keeping Christ in Christmas, and I'm all for keeping Christ in Christmas. As a matter of fact, that's what this whole series is about. And so be sure and do that. But I prefer rather for us to focus on being consumed with worshiping Jesus so much that we bear a faithful witness to Him. I want to start a new series today that I'll carry through the remainder of the year entitled Worship to Witness, God's Son given that the world may know. God's Son has been given that the world may know. It is said that Christmas is a time of year when people are most open to the gospel. When people are are most receptive to the gospel message. Quite frankly, I don't know if that could still be said to be true or not. I I know that our times be a-changing and and the world that we live in today is little uh, 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 like the world that I grew up in. And maybe I'm just getting old and that's the normal change that's supposed to take place, right? But I do know this. That arguments over the season provide a great opportunity not for us to enter into them, but for us to clarify the hope that we have in this season. And I hope and I pray that that's what we'll be focused on doing. There is a gospel paradigm that Scripture gives to us, and, and here it is from the prophetic promise that Isaiah offers in chapter 9, specifically in verse 6. He tells us that God reveals Himself. That is what we call the incarnation of God. He comes as as His Son, Jesus Christ. And then God calls us to Himself in Christ on the cross, crucified for us. God conquered sin once for all. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into a relationship with God. And we are saved from the eternal condemnation, yea, even damnation of our sin. In this relationship with God, He gathers us to worship Him and to exalt Him by the name of Jesus because there is no other name among men given whereby we must be saved, the book of Acts tells us. And then He commissions us to go and to make this name known. The last words of our Lord Jesus were that we go and make disciples by His authority. You see, when worship doesn't lead to faithful witness, it's something other than truth. That's my premise for this series. When worship fails to lead us to faithful witness, whatever it is that we're doing that we call worship, it's not true worship of the true God. It's worship. We're all worshiping and we're all worshiping continually. But my point is simply this. Who are we worshiping? You see, true worship of a faithful God produces a faithful witness. And so in this series, Worship to Witness, I'm going to focus on two principal aspects. The first is this. We're going to focus on 
Who is this God who has come to save us? Who is this God who has come to save us? It's the promise of Jesus that is set forth in the names of the Messiah that we see in Isaiah 9, 6. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. This is the God who has come to save us. Four names for this Savior Son help us to know and bring us into true worship of the true God. The second aspect that I'm going to focus on in this series is not only who this God is, but how His work for us in Jesus Christ motivates us to be a faithful witness in the world in which He has sent us. And we'll spend our time today in just a moment on three motivations that move us through faithful worship into faithful witness. But life point, we must be a people that never cease to share Jesus with the world because we are His people. We are his people. And this begins with every person. We share not out of obligation, but out of wondrous awe. Not not out of duty, but out of delight. Not out of guilt, but, but out of love. But we never allow our feelings to determine whether or not we share. Maybe I should have put the word should in there. Right? No, no, no. That's my point. I want to press up on us. I want to challenge us and encourage us not to just do what we know we ought to, but we don't too often. But no, rather to exhort us that God wants this of us and that God is empowering this from us by living this in us. Worship is incomplete until it becomes faithful witness. Witness is powerless without preceding worship that inflames our hearts and empowers our lives. I'm going to appeal to you throughout this series, not for what you are doing, but who it is you're worshiping. My prayer is that our faithful witness will be an overflow of an all-filled worship. For God has come and he has spoken to us in Jesus. Therefore, we must go and tell the world, I want us to hear from God. So that what we say to the world will be a resonation of what God has said to us. God sending Jesus defines our mandate and our motivation to go tell the world. And here's here's the big idea that I want us to grab hold of today. That Christians bear a faithful witness to the world from an all-filled worship of Jesus. Friends, there is real reason to share Jesus. And I want to provide three motivations today that move us from true worship to faithful witness in order to make Jesus' name known. And I believe Isaiah sets these forth for us here. Look with me in verses 2 through 5. The first motivation that I want to share with you today is simply this. It's the motivation of salvation. God rescues people to new life. God rescues people to new life. This is the motivation of our salvation. Isaiah spoke to a people in a time of great darkness over the land. If you do a historical study of what was taking place when Isaiah spoke these words, you might be shocked. You can see a situational snapshot of what's taking place in the last verse of chapter 8. Look in verse 22 of Isaiah 8. 
and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a situational snapshot of the land in that time. Darkness dominated the land because the people were proud and they rejected God. And because they rejected God, the neighboring pagan nations had come and overthrown them and were subjecting them to slavery. This word darkness, it describes the moral climate of the land in Isaiah's day. People just did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. You see, relativism didn't start in our day and time. It started in the pridefulness of the human heart. That's where relativity is rooted. And it was as prevalent in biblical days from Genesis to Revelation as it is today in our time. But darkness also described not only the moral climate, but the emotional and the psychological state of the people. They were defeated. They were deflated. They were in every way beat down because they had rejected God. But when God let them go their own way, they didn't have the strength to sustain the joy that they so desired. And so we see this emotional, this psychological emptiness. Not only that, but darkness describes even the security of the nation. Or as I said, they had been overthrown. There was no sign of hope on the earth. The earth was hopeless to the people in this setting. You see, darkness thickens to envelop as life plummets further away from God. The farther you walk away from God, the heavier and the darker darkness becomes. And the more all-pervasive it consumes a life. But with this backdrop of complete darkness, Isaiah turns their eyes and their heart to the Lord. For all who listened to Isaiah, hope was not lost, but what does he say? A light would shine. When we walk among the prison yard of dark, darkness's domain each and every day of our life, and while we are free from its domain, so many remain enslaved. You ever think about your life in that way? You're walking in a place that you're not bound by. And yet God has left us here for a reason. What better place to tell people that God rescues from darkness than those who are in darkness? What better people to tell those who've not been delivered from darkness than those who have been delivered? Salvation, friends, is our first motivation that moves us from worship to faithful witness. Isaiah 9, 2 and following tells of a change in the midst of darkness's domain. For he says, a people have seen a great light that has shone on them. This was no ordinary light that Isaiah was speaking of, but it was distinctive. It was distincting in the degree to which it shone on the people, in the magnitude in which it 
covered and the effect with which it brought about. And this light was making a difference in people's lives. They were experiencing, Isaiah said, a blessing of growth and blessings of joy and blessings of hope and celebration and generosity in the midst of the darkness. So here in this context of darkness that we just said, there was a light that was shining on a people who were experiencing something that was so distinct from everyone else and everything else around them that it made them noticeable to those who were around them. You see, the weight of darkness's oppression doesn't hold them because the light that has shone on them has broken it. That's what Isaiah is saying. The light reverses the darkness's oppression and it tramples the enemy. Let me ask you a question to make application here. Do you remember what it was like if you're a Christian today to live enslaved to your sin? Do you remember? I don't just mean the practices that you indulged in, though that was very much the path that you walked, but I mean the hopelessness that held you. For me, In my own enslavement to sin, the irony was that I was surrounded by the light. I was familiar with the light, but I chose to reject the light. And for me, though what I knew was present, I didn't walk in it because I didn't want it. And yet what I wanted, I wasn't finding where I did want. Deception of all deceptions. To see what I most need that would provide what I most desire. To look it in the eye and to say, no thanks. No thanks. But by the grace of God that pricked my heart and brought me out of sin's darkness, have I come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you remember when the light of Jesus shone in your heart? And you were saved. Do you remember that? I remember my mother. She said, you write the date in the front of your Bible so you don't forget. Right? That was one of many things she told me about following Jesus. Still tells me. I know you think you're a pastor and everything. But I'll tell you what. I'm your mother. (laughs) And when you meet Donna, you'll know. One of the voices that continually reminds me of God's goodness and grace. Do you remember where you were, who you were with, what took place, how you came to the point where the preached word of God and the spoken word of God and the word of God in print on the page was no longer just a physical thing, a physical experience, but all of a sudden it was a spiritual inoculation. That the heart was pricked and just poured out of all that it had so it could be filled of all that God had for you. Do you remember that? Have you gotten over that? Forgotten it? Moved on? Become more mature in your Christian walk because, oh, I made that decision. That was a good decision. And now we've moved on from that. Friends, I, I propose to you today, you don't ever get over when God saves you. And if you've gotten over whatever you thought of as God's salvation, that's not what it was. 
You may not remember all the details. You may not remember where you were or who you were with. Or you may not have written the date down in the front of your Bible. It's okay. It's okay. But if you've gotten over it, I want you to give serious consideration whether it was ever what the Scripture says salvation is all about. People without Jesus live in darkness. And friends, throughout the Scriptures, we see the example a lot of people walk very close to Jesus, but never have Him. But never have Him. Darkness is a kingdom that enslaves to deception. And one of Satan's greatest tactics today is to deceive you that close enough is enough without being filled, without being saved by him. People without Jesus live in darkness. A kingdom that enslaves to deceptions. Christians, though, are no longer enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. We've been rescued and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. For rescue is the essence of salvation. People who are set free to live with God. Colossians 1.13 tells us that He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son out of the kingdom of this darkness, of this domain of deception that, that causes us to think one thing which is actually opposite of what is true he's transferred us to a new kingdom jesus shines his most glorious light into darkness's thickest domain and he rescues people to new life you see when jesus saves he makes people a new creation jesus said to the religious leader nicodemus one of the highest of the pharisees he was most prominent in what we would have considered the church of that day and what did Nicodemus say to him in the cover of darkness mind you didn't want to risk his position but he said you know we we know there's something different about you we don't like it you're threatening our institution Jesus said to him I know all that you know because I know where you've gotten in your religious advancement. But what you don't know is that you must be born again. Born of water, physical birth. Born of the Spirit, spiritual birth. Friends, salvation is not just a decision that we ascertain to. Salvation is a divine inoculation of life by God. Born again. Nicodemus actually scoffed at Jesus, not in a rejecting way, but like, like I'm supposed to enter into my mom and be born again? And Jesus said, not of water, but of the Spirit of the living God that is here. Have you born again to a new to a living hope 
Not only are we born again, but in this new birth, we receive a new heart and a new spirit. That's what the scriptures teach us. I mean, nothing demonstrates a different person more than a changed heart and a changed spirit within them, right? God can take the most hardened of sinners and make them the biggest softies to spiritual matters. Salvation in Jesus, friends, makes people new, no longer the same as we were before Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you been made new today? By the Spirit of God convicting you of your sin and leading you by faith in repentance out of yourself and out of your sin to turn away and to turn towards Jesus and to receive what only he can do, putting off your own accomplishments, putting off your own achievements, putting on your own understanding that I'll do this for God, but rather understanding what God has done for me in Jesus Christ and taking on by faith all that Christ has for us. Friends, if your worship doesn't begin with Jesus, your witness will never get to him. Are you wearing your new today? Did you put on the Lord Jesus Christ today? Or if you've been made new, are you just covering him up under that rag cloth of the old you? You see, salvation means Christians live in a new kingdom first. It's God's kingdom. Jesus didn't come to improve and to perfect our self-help. Jesus brought a new kingdom. And he said in his announcement of his ministry that the kingdom of God is here. When he sent out the 72, two by two, he told them to tell people that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Why? Because he was the revelation of God's kingdom. You see, Christians bear faithful witness to the Lord Jesus and to his kingdom because he has rescued us from sin's domain and the darkness that enslaved. Friends, who better? Who better to tell the world of God's saving power than a person who's been rescued from the cold darkness of that domain? Salvation moves our worship of Jesus to a faithful witness because we've been rescued from darknesses. Domain. The second motivation I want to share with you today is the motivation of righteousness. We see this in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. That God sent His Son Jesus to rule in righteousness. God sent His Son Jesus to rule in righteousness. You see, when God establishes His throne, He establishes it in righteousness. And Isaiah prophesies of a son who is given that will become a ruler and his kingdom was distinguished by blessing and by justice and by righteousness. And people would experience peace under this rule of this new king. And as distinctive as his kingdom would be above all the worldly kingdoms, the true distinction of the kingdom would be the king himself. Not just the rules or the law of the kingdom, but the king himself. God's throne is not one way, only ruled by right law, friends. And that's so often what Christianity gets reduced to. But God's throne is a righteous ruler. Jesus is king who rules to bring peace and who rules to bring justice by his righteousness. He is the righteous one. And this is why, because he is the one who sits on the throne of God's kingdom. 
And so the child who is given is God's own son, his only begotten son, John 3 tells us. And here's the point, because the point is not just what he will do, for they had had a king who did great things, had they not? David had expanded the kingdom to its largest borders ever. And then his son Solomon took up the kingdom and he reigned with peace and with affluence and with enjoyment. And do you know what they learned? That military victory and affluence abounding were never enough to satisfy the people's hearts or the king's hearts because both of them looked for more when they looked only at what they could do, right? But both of them also point us to a greater king who was great not only because of what he could do, but more importantly, because of who he would be for the kingdom. And the blessing will not simply be the changes that come about, but because the one who brings those changes about. God has not only given a great ruler to his people, God has come among his people. That's the whole point of Isaiah's prophecy, that the new kingdom comes because the true king has come. And that's the kingdom in which we live as Christians. What a difference the right ruler can make. For the one that rules the heart determines what the kingdom will be like. Isn't that right? How about in your own heart? The one that rules the heart will ultimately always determine what that kingdom will be like. See, Jesus changes everything because his kingdom is not just about outward conformity, but it's about inward transformation. And the real influence of this promised son was how his kingdom would be ever increasing and expanding. Isaiah is speaking here in in ultimate terms, not just immediate earthly realities. You see, God's righteousness put on us in Christ places an eternal priority and an eternal perspective on our life to live for more than just this world that we're existing in right now. When Jesus' righteousness is placed on us, he redeems us to walk with him. His presence increases in our lives for the rest of our lives. Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm, you know which one I'm talking about. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2 says this, he leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. You see, God saves us and places Jesus' righteousness on us positionally before him. We're accepted. We're loved. There's nothing we can do to, to beckon against God to love us more. There's nothing we can do to cause God to love us or to accept us more. In Christ Jesus, we're fully accepted. And he gives us an eternal priority and an eternal perspective to live in this world with his kingdom as our first priority. But hear me, friends, he leaves us in this world for a reason. And the reason is bringing about the righteousness that he has placed on us to the full and complete understanding of of redemption that he is working out with in us. Christ's righteousness makes the Christian's life about walking with and living for the glory of God's name in the world, not only in us and for us, but through us to the whole world. 
Jesus places his righteousness on those who by faith trust in him. The glory of the Christian life is not an individual glory. It's a Jesus glory. Christians are are, are who we are only and all because of Jesus. That there isn't anything we can be given to make us Christians. There's nothing we can achieve to make us Christian. It's only and always because of Jesus and the change that he brings. Listen, friends, the change from who I was before Christ to who I am, hear me, becoming because of Christ has nothing to do with me. For my goodness wants to rear its ugly head every day. And it never wants me to walk with Jesus. I hope that doesn't disillusion you about me. But the truth of the matter is, left to myself, Jesus is not my aim or my glory. I am. And I'm not alone in this. For the scriptures tell us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one that's righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God in and of themselves. So everything in me that makes me want more of God in my life is evidence of his grace, not evidence of my goodness. Now, if you heard something different while ago, I hope you didn't hear me say that there's nothing in me that wants more of Jesus. I didn't say there's nothing in me that wants more of Jesus, but there is something in me that wants more of Jesus. If you're confused, you can hang around afterwards and we'll talk about it more. I'm almost confused, except for it's completely clear to me. The change he brings and the difference he makes is because his presence remains on us and in us. And because of that, his power is working in us. We're no longer what sin said about us. Did you hear that? God put his righteousness on us in Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is being worked out in redemption through us. We are not you, Christian, are no longer what sin is saying about you to you. You're no longer what your sin enslaved you to. We are changed. We are transformed within. We are now children of the King. And by faith, we're living out the truth of Jesus' righteousness that's put upon us through the redeeming work that is within us. He places his righteousness on our life to move us from where sin enslaved us to where he rules us. That's what God is doing. King Jesus has set his righteous kingdom in our hearts and in our lives. We are not our own. And though we live in this world, we are not of this world. We are Christ's. That means possessively defined and plurally defined. We are owned by him because he purchased us. We are of his kingdom. We are not our own and we are not alone. That's salvation, friends, and that's redemption. Our lives declare the redemption that only he brings. The redeeming power of Christ's righteousness in us declares the glory of God's redemption in Jesus for us. 
As Jesus redeems us to walk in righteousness and in holiness, he moves us through all filled worship to a faithful witness. And so the Christian life is Jesus' redeeming work to walk in righteousness and in holiness as he is righteous and holy. I talk a lot about Jesus' redeeming power that changes us. Because I want to explain it more fully for us to understand what God's doing in us. The main reason is is because I need to be constantly reminded of his change. And I need to be constantly reminding Satan of that change too. You see, Satan wants me to believe that nothing's changed. And sometimes he comes very near convincing me. But Satan's wrong. I'm not the man that I was early on July the 3rd of 1986. And when I woke up on July the 4th of 1986, the fireworks going off in me were of a greater glory because of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness was put on me. He is my new identity. He is my new purpose. He is my new life. You see, righteousness moves true worship to faithful witness as we declare God's redeeming power in our lives to walk in righteousness, and in holiness, and obedience. The third motivation we find is at the end of verse 7. I love this phrase. It's one that we ought to never let go of, friends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me give you the third motivation. The third motivation is simple. It's mission. God will accomplish His mission We talk about salvation, we talk about righteousness and redemption. We need to keep those together with mission. You see, Isaiah's promise will come true because God will make it happen. I mean, there's just a confidence here that's anchored, that's unshakable. And I love it. It's not arrogance. It's confidence in God's sustaining strength. The Lord's zeal will do what Isaiah has promised. Wouldn't you love to speak of something with this kind of confidence? You can. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it is wrong for us to speak of the Lord's salvation and of the Lord's righteous redemption in any other way. And it is wrong for us to think of God's mission in any other way than the way that Isaiah presents it to us here. The zeal of the Lord God will do this. You see, God is more committed to conquering sin in his mission than any of us could be. God is more committed to conquering our sin in us than we could ever be. And here's what he says. He says, the Lord of hosts. That title for Jesus, that title for God, anytime you see it in the Old Testament, here's what you know. God's got a warfare mindset. The Lord of hosts is God's title for his first general. Commander-in-chief, he's engaging the enemy so he can crush him. The Lord of hosts will do this. God says, listen, there's not going to be any prisoners. I'm just going to conquer the enemy and be done with him. And so as we see His understanding here, we understand that God's mission is to conquer sin for His glory. Consider the context of this passage, if you will, friends. Just think about the setting that I began with in the beginning. None of this prophecy was a reality for Israel at the time it was given. 
As a matter of fact, for the vast majority of the people of God in Israel at the time, it didn't even seem it was possible, yet alone probable. But none of it would be forgotten by God. We may wonder why so much sin and its influence remains in this world. We may wonder why so much remains in our lives too. But hear me, friends, God will not be thwarted, nor will he be denied. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish the mission that God has sent him for. God conquered sin in Jesus. By faith, sin can have no victory in your life because of Jesus. And the only time that sin wins is when we get consumed with life in the here and now, and we lose sight of eternity and what God is doing in us. Christian, mission begins when you look at the context of your life and you live in light of God's eternal plan in the midst of it. The light shone into the darkness. We're just asking God to open a door to a room filled with light so we can go into it and get out of it. And God said, you don't need to get out of it. The darkness will be overcome when the light shines in it. We need to stop looking for a way out and open our lives to let God fully in. You see, we worship a God who is infinitely powerful and glorious, but all the power and glory we see is but a fraction, but a fraction of God's true being. God is working. Philippians 2.12 tells us what? Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christian, you can't work out your own salvation if you're not laboring in the world for the salvation that God gives. That's mission. That's mission. As we join God's mission, we work with Him by His power and for His glory in this world and in our lives. You see, some of you are thinking today that, that what you know, God's just got a little more work He's doing in me, and then, man, I'm just going to unleash the beast that He creates. Right? I mean, we don't say it that way, but we think about it that way. You know, when God finishes with me here, then I'll join Him there. But I'm telling you, whatever's happening here is not happening of God because you've separated your individual Christianity and labeled it God's redemption, but you've isolated yourself to not be a part of this mission in the world. There is no individual redemption that is not holistic in God's mission. You're possessive and plural. You are God's individually, and you are God's plurally. And God wants to accomplish your redemption in his redemption of all things. That's why mission should motivate us to move from worship. Right here, friends, some of you feel very confident and safe in these walls. And I want you to know these walls are an illusion to us. Praise God, HVAC exists. Amen? We put a tent on the back of this property, 30 degree weather, none of you would show up. Well, a couple of you would. You get paid. But that wouldn't last very long because if the rest of you weren't showing up, we wouldn't. So we'd probably be allowed as well. And if you weren't here to know, it wouldn't matter, would it? Good grief. You get what I'm saying? There's a reason that we gather here. And it's not secondary to everything else we do. As a matter of fact, I would argue that in order of our understanding, we need to be here so we can be fully there. 
We need to gather in this gospel paradigm of God's redeeming work in the world so that we can gather around the throne, so that we can be fueled for the work that God is giving us to do. But listen, it's like we're filling our tanks every week and we're not going anywhere during the week. We come here to get filled up and we don't pour it out during the week. What are we doing? I'll tell you what we're doing. It's called science experiment that lived in my refrigerator in college. And I was too lazy to take it from the refrigerator to the trash can so it'd get hauled out. And it got nasty, right? It just sat there and got stagnant. And that's kind of how we do so often. Mission begins in worship as we consume our hearts and our minds with God's glory and our eyes and our lives with His eternal purpose in the world. Listen, Christians see what God has said more than what the world is saying. Listen, friends, I know when you think about sharing and witnessing, you go to people and go, man, they're never going to listen to me. They're reprobates, right? Well, that's the point, friends. That's the point. As a matter of fact, a faithful testimony of God's grace and goodness and power is the only thing that can change that. They got there on their own. They'll never get away from it. And they might improve themselves some, but they'll never get to where we know God wants them to be. And that's the point. We don't look at people and go, you know, do I have a shot with them or not? I think I do. Let's go for it. No, this isn't junior high dating. Let's go to those that are farthest from God. We, we meet people in darkness and we show them God's glorious light. That, that's all a faithful witness is. We don't produce something for God. We just show what God has done in us. It's why the awe of God in our worship is so important. When we have no awe in worship, there will be no action and witness. We're living ambassadors, friends, of God's kingdom that will come in fullness. And ambassadors live in hostile territory to represent the kingdom. And we live with the full resources of the kingdom at our disposal. That's what God has given to us. So we labor in God's mission to clothe our worship with actions of faithful testimony. That's what moves us. That's how mission moves us through our faithful worship into our faithful witness. You know, th this birth announcement is no ordinary announcement, friends. This is not a cry for a seasonal change in our world. This is deity birthed. News that forever altered history. God became man for unto us a child is born to us a son is given life point let's move our worship to faithful witness let us encourage one another and spur one another on that we might be faithful witnesses in the world of what god is doing here and here. Christians bear a faithful witness to the world from an awe-filled worship of Jesus. What are you doing here today? Why are you here? What do you want to walk away with? Let's pray. Father, I know um, <clears throat> we just picked a fight with Satan this morning. Because anytime we put things in right perspective in gospel terms, 
it triggers an alarm in Satan. And even right now, God, he's trying to distract us. He's trying to, to deter us, to cause us to look at something else. And God, I just pray that you'd guard us and protect us right now in ways that we're not good at guarding ourselves. Spirit of God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us against thinking, I'm not worthy to be telling people about Jesus. I pray that you would guard us against thinking that we're not good about telling people about Jesus. And I pray that you would guard us against thinking that that's not really what you want for us. But God, I just pray that you'd move us. I pray that you would move us in this place by the presence of your Spirit. I pray that you would move us in this place and in this time by the work of what you're doing in each of our lives and even in our church. And I pray, God, that you would not let this be contained, but that it would pour out and we would move from this place into the places of our lives and we would pour out the work of your Spirit that is in us all over the people that are God, help us not to be about wasting our time here. But to be filling our hearts and our lives with awe of who you are. That the actions of our faith might pour out in a faithful witness, a faithful testimony, a faithful life of walking with you. Do this thing among us, God.